to enjoy life. You have one chance and you have one heart. And if you carry all that hatred in your heart, you're preventing yourself that happiness that life is all about. You should just enjoy life, enjoy what life has to offer. And for me personally, there is nothing better in life than the laughter of a child, than to be able to pay it forward and help somebody in need, to watch them find that inner spirit and inner life again. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, depending on when you're tuning in with us. This is a contagious smile where every smile tells a story. I am Victoria, and with us today is Miss Sandy. She is a survivor, a thriver, a fighter, you name it, she's got it. Sandy, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. Good to be here. I really appreciate it. I love the message that you have and that you put out there for everybody. Now, you also say that you yourself have been through a lot and that you learned to follow your intuition. Can you tell me how that came about? Well, it was a process. It didn't happen all at once. Um, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor when I was 16. The abuse lasted for five years, and it was um, physical and emotional. It was a, a wonderful pastor that everyone loved. He was very charismatic. Um, and he spent a year grooming me and setting me up to eventually have sex with me. And at that point, his personality changed. Uh, he was no longer this wonderful, caring person that I thought I knew. And so that, that yeah, I trust him. I trust him, my pastor. But then once they um, cross that boundary, they begin to, you know, use manipulation, gaslighting, all of that that plays into your emotions that um, creates. A situation where you cannot see your way out of it. You feel like you're stuck. And then, first of all, for me, I knew no one would believe me. He told me that no one would believe me. He told me I would be blamed if I would ever tell anyone. And so I did feel isolated. And um, that's what kept me under his control for five years. He, he told me how I was to dress, what things I could see. And then eventually, because of that wearing down and the low self-esteem that I had, um, you, I gave up. You give up trying to figure out how to get out of it. You just, at least for me, I accepted the relationship and that this was going to be my life. I knew that I would never get married um, and I never had children and this wouldn't be over because he said it would be over. And so that, that was the mentality and the mindset that I was in once the abuse ended. And so for me to try and figure out how to move forward, for me it was just to suppress it and to keep it a secret for 27 years. My husband, mother, me, my children, my family, uh, close friends. And it was at a moment uh, when I had a trigger, um, and I had many triggers throughout the years, but this one was a, a, a doozy. It really sent me over the edge to a point that I had been... I wouldn't say it was a bright light bulb that went over, but it was a dim light that said to me, this was not right what he did to you. And it was this moment that I had that I knew now I had to deal with my past. And I had to figure out a way to heal and move forward in my life. Because I was really stuck in some ways. He was still a part of my life. Um, the triggers, I felt a lot of guilt and shame through the years. I had this imposter um, moment of feelings that I wasn't the the person people thought I was, that I was this, you know, wonderful person who volunteered, who was a nice mother. But in my mind, it was if they knew the truth about me, that I had sex with a married pastor, 
they would see me differently and they would not think the same of me. And so I felt like I was an imposter throughout my 27 years of the secrecy. But it was that trigger factor that, that, that started the moment that said, you need to figure this out. This wasn't right what he did to you. Um, after his abuse was discovered with me, he was moved to another church. Um, he was given a going away party. He was forgiven. I mean, it was, you know, pretty, you know, swept under the rug. He was moved to the next church. I was driving to, it was in Tennessee, and I was driving to a uh, golf tournament that my daughter was playing in, and I happened to pass the sign to the town where he had moved after our church. And it was that moment when I saw that sign that I thought, this is where he lives. This is where he, 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 he might be right behind me in my car. I mean, I, I had just an overwhelming sense of anxiety. I had to pull to the side of the road. I sat there for about 20 minutes and just sobbed. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why I was having this such a strong emotion. But it was that trigger that said, okay, this isn't going to be suppressed any longer. It's out, and you have to deal with it. It was like a volcanic eruption. It wasn't going to go back. So how did the church find out about it? So, you know, this went on for five years, and people started seeing red flags. People became suspicious. So two of the people um, from the church uh, followed him one night, and they found us in a hotel room. Um, He was brought in by the elders. He was told his version of the story, his narrative of what occurred. He was lied about the time of time frame of the abuse. He said it was only going on for a year, which at that point then made me around 20. But it had started when I was 16. Um, I was never asked any questions. I was called in, um, never called in by the elders. I was simply told where I was to sit in church, how I was to behave. I was told not to tell my parents. Um, and about three months after he left, I was then called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And I will tell you, I was devastated. I was actually devastated. I loved this church. It was the only church I'd ever attended. And so to be told that I was unfit to worship in that church, I told people um, that probably had more of an effect on my life lifelong than the actual abuse. Um, and while both were horrific, being told that you're unfit to worship in the church really set me on a course of low self-esteem that I wasn't worthy. Um, even though I had this great life of 27 years and a wonderful husband and great kids, and on the outside it appeared that everything was perfect in my life, there was always a turmoil on the inside. You already had a low self-esteem because of what you had to go through. Right. And to have the place that you worship and since you were little, it's amazing. It's just... Yeah. And I will tell you, this wasn't his first incident. Um, really? Shortly after he arrived at our church, uh, a young woman came forward from his first church and accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. He was called in by the elders and the senior pastor, and he said he was sorry that he would never do it again. He asked for forgiveness. And so they allowed him to remain as our youth pastor and without giving any information to the congregation. Within three to four months of that accusation, he was stopping me in my hallway um, and kissing me. And so this pattern for him continued. He 
when he was moved to the next church, um, he again committed sexual misconduct with a woman in her early 20s. Um, she became pregnant. Um, he eventually moved to another denomination where he again, by his own admission, had many incidents of sexual misconduct. One of the things that I did um, for my own healing in this process was I felt the need to confront him. Um, I had not had any contact with him, so I didn't even know if he was alive. I didn't know where he was. I hired a private investigator. I found him in a church in Alabama, still ministering. Is he still married? Uh, his first wife divorced him. Um, yeah. And the interesting story, I'll, I'll kind of look back, but, um, so I confronted him. Um, he was, you know, said all the things you'd expect him to say. He was sorry. He, you know, never meant to hurt me. And he never could verbalize or articulate in any way what he really had done to me. You know, he had destroyed my spiritual life. He contaminated it. He, he changed everything I knew about what I believed in God. And he, he could never, that wasn't what he understood by his own actions. And, you know, I was glad that I confronted him. Um, I certainly rattled him, which he deserved. Um, but his supervisor who was sitting there with him told me that because this had happened so long ago, it didn't really have any validity to today, that he had changed. He was a different person. And, and there's some things in the book that will, I think, reveal that he really hadn't changed. Um, so, you know, I didn't see true repentance. I didn't see someone who cared about me. This was about how he continued in his ministry. He was worried that, you know, he would lose his job once I came forward. I was concerned that his 11 elders in his current church had no idea of his past. His congregation had no idea. And this worried me. So I uh, sent 11 letters to the 11 elders. Nothing, you know, I thought it was just a very straightforward, this is who I am, this is what happened to me, and the concerns that this man remains in ministry, and the fact that the congregation is not aware. I got no response. Not one person responded. Um, yeah, so then I went to his denominational leaders that were in Indianapolis, the president of the denomination. They put me in touch with another individual who allowed to meet, who agreed to meet with me. But again, the response was the same. We don't have any control over our, who our churches hire. This is something that happened so long ago. Um, this is in spite of the fact that while I met with him, he told me that he'd been in counseling and that he had been identified as a sexual addict. So I'm not sure in whose world that makes sense if you have a sexual addict, admittedly, who now is in charge of the church and who and without congregational knowledge of that information. So, um, you know, I hit a brick wall pretty many times, and I felt like I had done all I could do from that aspect. And he continues in ministry. Um, I think he's semi-retired now. Um, but, you know, he's very charismatic. And so they are. And so he's easy, he, it's easy to, you know, fool these people. And um, and again, I think the other, I've talked about this too. When you have your pastor that you look up to, a pastor that is very charismatic, who brings in people, who brings in money, and you have a personal relationship with them, they baptize your children, they marry 
your children or they sit by the bedside as your mother's dying. When you have that personal relationship, it's, it's difficult for people to see through that and see the truth. Because they don't want to see the truth. They, they want to believe this person that they think they know is the person who he is. And so when they're confronted with something as horrific as abuse, it's easier to blame the victim. It's easier to make excuses for the pastor. And that is the path that many churches will follow. Yeah, that is exactly across the board. They always put the blame on the victim. They, they put the, the, literally, we have to prove. And then they just think, it's like. Well, you know, what did you do? You know, I was, I was looked at this attractive 16 year old flirt who, who lured him into his sin. Um, and when you have men in charge of the church, which at that time that was all in charge, and I think that's, it is the way it's still in many denominations, you know, they see themselves as, there go, by the grace of God, go I. You know, and oh, I, I could have made that mistake. It's not a mistake. And this isn't someone who just falls into sin. These are men, and sometimes women, who target their victims and who look for easy prey. They look for someone that they can take advantage of. And so, they're very methodical in, in their behaviors. This isn't a, a simple mistake. And they, there's 99% there is always a pattern of this behavior. And people will say, well, it's the first time he's done this. No, it's the first time he's been caught. It doesn't necessarily mean it's the first time. And if you follow these men and women, there is a pattern. This is a behavior for them. And the shepherd has become a wolf, and he's no longer fit to be the shepherd of the sheep. He's devoured one of the sheep, and churches need to, to see that. You know, um, they rely on the scriptures of, you know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we shouldn't judge. Well, the, the problem with that is it's not about judging the individual. It's about judging whether he's capable of doing his job. And he's proven by his actions he's not capable of doing that job. Um, and so it's very hard for victims of clergy abuse to get that message across to people in, in the congregation and the church leadership to respond in an appropriate way. People that will say, well, he, this is the first time he ever did it. You know, he's not going to do it again. And then they feel bad for the abuser. And then they look at us like, you know, well, right. in the past. But really it's not because I tell people I believe part of me was murdered. You know, Absolutely. During that time, because it was taken from me. I mean, yeah. I, you know, even and they're like, "But you're still here." I'm still here, yes, but you know, everything that I was isn't. And so, and yeah, abuse changes a person. It changes our dynamics of who we are. You know, I tell victims, you don't have to allow your abuse to define you, but it's always a part of you. And triggers still happen for me, um, even through my healing. Um, Trauma affects not only how you feel and believe at the time of the abuse, but even years later. Our decision-making, our trust in people, our ability to assess situations are altered yes. because of what was done to us in our past. We are a changed person because of the abuse. And some of us never heal from that. And and. We need to understand and support each other. But those around us are the ones who need to understand. And that was part of the reason I wrote the book. I was so frustrated by 
reaction of people and the lack of understanding of the dynamics of clergy abuse. And why can't you just go back to church? Or why don't you believe in God anymore? Or why don't why do you find scripture reading uncomfortable? All of those things that I was frustrated by the questions, and I, I appreciated the questions because it gave me the opportunity to help explain it. But I, I needed a form to say this is why clergy abuse is so devastating to an individual. Well, our faith connects us to other people in our in our faith. Our our, our rituals are important to us, and when someone is abused within the church is through a spiritual leader, whether it's a choir director, Sunday school teacher, pastor, priest, or rabbi, it contaminates that, that spiritual life for us. And it, it can never be the same. And so, um, and then the second reason I wrote the book is I, I, I understood that my story was powerful for other victims and that I needed to share my story as difficult as it was to write the book because there's some very personal things in there. And, and I understood when I wrote the book, I just couldn't say I was sexually abused. I had to give the details because it, it, it's it what tells the story and shows, hopefully, how devastating and how horrific that abuse was. When you wrote the book, was it therapeutic or was it difficult to go through the ins and outs of it? It was both. Um, in the beginning, it was extremely difficult. Um, I made myself write every day, I, I, whether it was for three minutes or three hours. I, I absolutely forced myself every day to write something. There was one chapter in the book I could not write. It was, um, I had, someone had years ago given me a tape of one of his sermons. It was on family and marriage. It was a series that he did, and it was an old cassette tape, and I pulled that out of the box. And I put it in a cassette recorder because I wanted to show that this man, while he was preaching on marriage and the sanctity of marriage, was having sex with me on Saturday night before preaching Monday morning. And I, I listened to the tape, and it just it overwhelmed me. Um, I heard his voice. I felt like I was sitting right back in the third pew listening to him. So I had a really good friend um, who had done some writing, and I just said to her, "Here's what I want to get out of this chapter." Can you help me? And would you write it? And she wrote it for me, and then I read it and edited it. And that was the only chapter that I couldn't write. Um, I spent a lot of tears writing the book, but in the end, it was very helpful um, because what I what I discovered was, and there's a couple of places in the book that were very personal in what I had done with this man and he had done to me. And I, it was in the writing that I freed myself because I had nothing to be ashamed of. I had nothing to be ashamed of. As long as I kept that inside of me and wouldn't put it on paper, I was still telling myself, oh, this is too bad to write. You shouldn't write this. And so, yes, it was very cathartic, and I'm glad that I wrote the, I wrote the book. I've had many victims tell me how helpful to, to them, and so that's been my joy in writing the book. I think that, yeah. I think that kind of what was the age difference between you and this individual? Um, I was 16 and he was 30. Um, he had two children. Um, oh, that was what I was so afraid you were going to say. Yeah, and he also, um, during that five period, she uh, became pregnant and had another child as well. Um, now, let me just say something about her. You know, I, I sang in the choir with her. Um, she was part of the youth group. So it was, you know, for me in a very confusing time, um, 
you know, of course, he made it sound like she was this horrible person, and, um, and he was abusive to her as well. Um, I babysat for the family, so that was kind of my connection with him. When she wasn't there, he had a lot of time to spend with me. Um, but I saw him throw a book at her. Uh, he was an abusive individual, period, no matter who was around, basically. Um, so at any rate, when they moved to the next church, uh, as I said earlier, he then once again committed suicide. conduct. She divorced him and um, moved. Once I confronted him, um, I, I felt this need to reach out to her. And, and not to say that I was sorry, because again, it wasn't my fault what was done to me. Squarely, I would blame was right on him. But I, I felt this need to just to say to her, I feel sorry for the pain that you went through too at that time. And, and I also wanted to give her the opportunity if she wanted to scream at me, yell at me, hate me, whatever she wanted to do. I, I didn't know what she would do. So I hired an investigator again. He found her. Um, I just simply made a phone call to her. And she couldn't have been more gracious. She was very loving. She was very kind. Um, we understood that we were both abused by him. Um, so I visited her several times. Um, and we developed a very nice relationship. We keep in contact. And um, I, I think our relationship, while some might find odd, I think demonstrates um, grace and forgiveness and shows that um, when two people can understand what was done to them together, um, a friendship can be formed. Now, you also talk about that there is very specific techniques that are used when the predator is manipulating. Can you give us some of those? Sure. Keep in mind, this is usually someone that you already trust, whether it be an, an uncle or brother or whatever. Um, so it's someone you already trust, so you're not looking for red flags to begin with. But they start with usually with love bombing, which is an excessive amount of flattery and gifts. And so you, a person who feels special already by this person giving these wonderful things to them, they feel validated. But a lot of times these um, men and women will look for individuals who are already maybe have a low self-esteem, maybe they went through a crisis in their life. So they, they tap into people that I would call easy prey. So they start with the love woman. And then the grooming starts. And this is to establish a false trust with the victim. To get them to feel comfortable around this person enough that they don't see the red flags. And it allows the perpetrator to continually push boundaries that the victim begins to accept they wouldn't accept in someone else. Um, and it's an overall slow period, a long period of time, and it's very slow in the product, and it's, it's Starts with small things and then it gets bigger. So they start crossing boundaries that the victim accepts. And then there's manipulation, which is an undue influence over another person who creates situations so that they can find themselves with this person. They usually isolate them away from their friends and family and so that the attention is all on the victim. And so the, the victim doesn't feel like they can go outside of the relationship of this person. And at this point, it may not be sexual at all. Again, this is all kind of a setup and a way to finally get to the final goal of controlling this person and having sex with them. And then there's gaslighting, which for me was the most uh, damaged and, and had the most influence over me. 
gaslighting is the perpetrator is distorting and changing the victim's perception of reality. And they do this by lying to the victim. So they begin by usually telling the victim, hey, you know how much I love you. You know how much I care for you. And you know I would never hurt you. They're gaslighting them into believing these things, when in reality they are going to be hurting them. And then when you begin to question the, the, the reality around you, like, I don't know that he should be doing this. Oh, you're just misunderstanding the situation. Or that's not what I'm really doing. And then they get to the point of saying things like, when you do begin to question it, you're crazy, or you're too emotional, or you're too sensitive, or I didn't say that. And so that you begin to, to, to doubt the reality that you see, which then you begin to doubt your ability and your judgment and to question. And you, you only then begin to see the reality that your perpetrator wants you to see. So it's love bombing, it's grooming, it's manipulation, and it's gaslighting. You add all those things emotionally to an individual who's already maybe fragile, and you become trapped. You become trapped into this person's relationship, and you don't see a way out. Even if there is a way out, I tell people, just because there is a way out, if you don't see it, then there isn't a way out. And for me, I felt completely trapped. I did not see a way out. It felt like I couldn't tell anyone. Um, he told me never to tell anyone, but no one would believe me. Well, of course, I'm thinking, I don't believe this is happening to me, and why would someone believe me? And I also understood that this would be a bombshell. And I think most victims feel that way, whether it's clergy abuse or not, because now they're going to tell someone that this person they think is wonderful, that they're doing these awful and evil things to you. You know, so I worried about whether I would be believed. I worried about being judged. What would people think of me? I mean, here I was having a there with a married man who's the pastor of the church. And so being able to get out of the relationship, it's not as easy as simply saying, I'm, I'm leaving, I'm out of here. We are we are truly trapped. And when you think about a trap, what makes a trap good in the first place is the fact you're lured in without understanding that the trap is behind you, in front of you. And once you're in, there is no way. Um, and so that's, that's what I felt like I was in a black hole. That's, that's about how I felt. And so, as I said earlier, I just accepted the relationship. I, in the beginning, I tried to get out. Um, I would go to him and say, this is wrong. I'm going to leave the church and I felt guilty. And he would respond one of two ways. And this is what, the, this is what they do as well. They read the situation and say, okay, how is she, how's the best way to respond to her in this time? So he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would become very loving and very kind and beg me to stay, tell me he couldn't do ministry without me and that we were doing God's work. We were married in God's eyes. This was God's will. So he played the guilt trip. Or he would become violent. He pushed me up against the wall and tell me, no one's ever going to love you the way I do. You're no longer a virgin and no one's ever going to want you again. And so either way, I felt trapped with those responses. And so eventually I quit. Trying to get out. I just didn't. But how did you get out? Well, because he was caught. He was caught. And so that ended it. Um, no, that didn't end it entirely. Um, he continued to call me um, from his second church. Um, and it wasn't until um, I met my future husband that uh, we, he was insisting that I still come visit him, which I did on one or two occasions. 
even after he had left. So you know, he is still lying. He's still uh, being unfaithful to his wife. All the things that he had said to the elders that, you know, this was a mistake and, you know, I, I, please forgive me. And they didn't want to ruin his career. And he was such a good pastor and he deserved a second chance, even though this was really his third chance. Um, and so, you know, and, and when I tell church leadership, when I talk to them and I do conferences, they say, this is a man who lied throughout his ministry. Why would you think he wouldn't continue to lie to keep his job? Um, they're not going to be truthful and come forward. And a truly repentant, truthful man would recognize his own failures and recognize that he's not fit for ministry and would remove himself. You know, it's the alcoholic who knows he can't have that other drink. An alcoholic knows he can never have a job as a bartender. A man who recognizes his faults and his weaknesses would remove himself. And these men don't do that. And they continue to, because they need that position of power. It, it's, it's their, their need in their life to have power over people. And they're truly not shepherds. They're wolves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. What do you think are the three hidden truths to that? The hidden truths in the, in the sense of misconduct or just in general? In general. So I think we, one, one hidden truth is that we see them differently than we do other individuals. We look up to them. Um, we see them with experience, knowledge, and so we see them as a higher level than we are. We see them as representatives of God, which they are, but that puts us in a place where we don't see them as individuals and that when there is a misconduct that occurs, we don't respond the way that we should. I think secondly, we also feel that they don't have the same sins that we have. And so when something occurs that kind of, oh, wow, I didn't know they were capable of that or I thought they would be great husbands. Um, that, that failure is also there. Um, that's another, you don't see them as men who have moral fallings as well. Um, and the third thing, I'm not sure. I guess those are the two biggies that I would see. Tricks do you think prior to cute? Well, I think the first thing they do is they, they make you believe that they're a true good person who cares about you. Um, They've got to gain your trust first before they you allow them to cross those boundaries. And so that's the first thing they do. Is they put on a persona that they are good, caring, loving people. And, and they look for victims, as I said, who have a need, and they get to know that person, and they get to know that need. You know, they will say things like, you know, I really care about you, and I'd like to know more about your childhood. And or, you know, I know you're going through a tough time in your marriage, and, and tell me about that. And so they look for those problems so that they can act like they're going to help you and act as if they're going to solve those problems for you and care about you. Then um, I think that the next big thing is that once the boundaries are crossed, they make you feel guilty if you were to ever expose them. Um, and I, you, uh, Susan Forward uses the acronym FOG, F-O-G. Victims have fear of what will happen if they expose their predator and feel an obligation to their predator. And a lot of people don't understand this. 
Because in the beginning, they were these wonderful, caring people, and we feel obligated to them. We feel obligated to stay in the marriage. We feel obligated that this person is so good to us in the beginning. How can I do this to him by exposing him? And then there's guilt. There's guilt for feeling like this was something that I had done, and I feel guilty for it, and I, I don't want to expose the guilt that I feel. So it's, it's fear, obligation, and guilt that keeps victims in relationships. Um, and I certainly felt that obligation to him. I, I, that was huge for me. Um, if I feared what would happen if I told, but the obligation that I felt in and to the congregation, because what would this do to them if I were to expose him? It would be devastating the congregation. And I think when it happens within a family, think about, you know, a child or having to come forward and, and expose Uncle Jimmy, who everyone loves. There's, and, and Uncle Jimmy's been good to me, and he gives me gifts, and he takes me places. So they feel the, the victim feels obligated to the perpetrator. How did you start the healing process? Well, the first part began just, I think, by having that moment of, of understanding in a vague way that this shouldn't have happened to me, and that this wasn't really about love. Um, and the, the very next thing I did was I began to Google and read everything I could on not just clergy abuse, but sexual abuse. And that opened my eyes to the terms of grooming, manipulation, gaslighting. And when I saw that, it was like, okay, that's what he did to me. All those things that I could look back on and say, yeah, that time he said to me this, that's what he was really doing. So I, I educated myself. And then I finally had the courage to tell my best friend. And that was extremely difficult. I knew that I couldn't do this alone and that I needed to tell someone. And exposing that to her um, was the beginning of my being able to slowly tell another friend and then another friend. I didn't tell my husband for about six, seven months. Um, not that I, I knew he would be caring and understanding, but I also knew that once I told him you know, whatever reaction he had, I couldn't take back. You know, would he look at me differently sexually? Would he think, why didn't you tell me sooner? Why couldn't you have trusted me sooner? Would he feel like there was a lack of trust? You know, why couldn't I have told him? And I didn't want to hurt him. And I, so it took me a while to finally have the courage to tell him. And he responded in the way that I knew he would. He was, his main concern was about me, how this affected me, what he could do to help. He never blamed me. He never asked me questions. So, but, so, you know, first I, I educated myself. I finally found someone to tell. And, and then, you know, like I said, I confronted him. That was uh, another healing, um, process for me. But this, this all took over a period of two to three years. It does, you know, healing is a difficult, messy process. You take three steps forward. You take two steps back. It, it, and, for me, and I think for many victims, we always go back to that spot of blaming ourselves. I always felt like, why couldn't I have said no? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I tell someone? And there was this constant blame of guilt and shame. And that's hindering my, that was hindering my ability to move forward and heal. And I will tell you something else that, that kept coming back to me and I still had moments when I felt sorry for him. And I had moments before I confronted him. I remember 
you know, I knew it was something I needed to do. I knew what he did was wrong, and he never should have done it. But I remember one day I thought, oh, my gosh, if I confront him with his boss sitting there, he may lose his job. And I called my friend, and I said, I was sobbing. I said, you know, I don't know if I should do this because you know, he could lose his job. And she looked at me, and she said, he should lose his job, and you should do this. If this is what you need to do. But, you know, I still had those moments that I bounced back and forth. I don't have them anymore. But victims have a hard time not blaming themselves. And that's that's one of those things that really is hard to get past. And I'll tell you the other thing I felt. We don't want to be abuse victims. Deep down, I wanted to believe that somewhere along the way, he did care about me and that he did love me. No one wants to believe that they were just used and that they were a castaway and that they were nothing more than this person's sexual satisfaction. And that's what I was. And that's hard to accept. And I had a hard time accepting that too, because I kept going back to, I know, because there were times he was loving and caring. And he was this, looked like this good person who would do wonderful things. And so that was another hindrance to my healing as well. That confuses you, because you're like, well, I'm getting to this point where I'm like, all right, this isn't right. And then here comes that charming, charismatic right. creature. And you're like, oh, you know, and, and then you just kind of slip backwards when you're getting that strength up and you, and you come backwards. I always tell people when I'm doing speaking engagements or support groups that you need to remember one thing. You have survived 100% of your worst days. You have a 100% track record of getting through them. So... What do you tell people that are starting their healing process? Well, again, I, I start with, this was not your fault. You had every right to trust the person that you believe should have been trusted in the safest place on earth, the church, or in a, in a family situation. You should be able to trust your father, your brother. And so whatever, and, and, and I tell victims as well, this didn't just happen to you. This was done to you. You were targeted. You were set up. You were groomed and manipulated to a point that you did the best you could in the situation you found yourself. And I tell people, that, and I did this too, you know, we, we can all look back and say, well, I could have, should have done. Well, here's the thing. You did what you could at the time with the coping skills that you had then. You don't have the same coping skills then that you have now. And so you... You, you only could respond in the way that you could. There was nothing you could have done at that point to change it. And so it, it's so important for victims to start there, I think, to understand it's not your fault. The guilt and the shame and the blame lie squarely on your abuser. And then I tell people, you need to accept where you are. Accept, accept that pain and that hurt. And, and accept those trigger factors. Don't try to suppress them. For me, once I began, you know, I would try to go back to church. I took my kids to church because I wanted them to have that experience. But I never engaged in any way. I, I tuned out all prayers. I didn't run my grocery list when I was listening to the sermon. Now, if I have to go to a funeral or a wedding and I'm in a church for some reason, if a trigger comes, I accept it and I understand why it's happening. Um, and I can deal with it now opposed to trying to which only hurts your healing process even more. And, you know, the triggers are, are, are horrendous sometimes. They are. 
but knowing they're coming and knowing that I can manage them as opposed to trying to press them is also helpful. And I want to say too to the victims, there's hope and there's healing. There is hope and there's healing. As I said earlier, your abuse will never go away. I mean, it would be ridiculous to think I can forget it. You're not going to forget it. But it doesn't define who you are. And you can move forward in spite of the abuse. Um, and it changes you. And for me, like, I, I, I know that I sometimes when I meet a new person, I'm judging them. I'm looking at them and I have a, a wall up initially. And then I think, okay, this is why I'm doing that. Um, and I have a right to do that because of what was done to me. Um, we have a right to have some issues. Yes. Um, we have a right. Um, so be kind to each other because you just don't know the way that some people to travel. Absolutely. Now, you have referred a couple of times to the book you've written. Um, mm-hmm. Can you tell us the name of the book and where we can find it? Um, the name of the book is, um, well, I've got a copy here. It's called Let Me Pray Upon You, P-R-E-Y, opposed to P-R-A-Y. Um, and I use the analogy of the wolf and the sheep again. Um, it's available on Amazon. It's also available on my website, which is simply my name. It's www.sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S. Almost done. Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-N.com. So it's Sandy Phillips Kirkham. Com. I, and I would encourage um, victims to go to the website. There's a lot of um, good information there, and I have a big bibliography in the back of my book for other resources. Again, I think education is so important because if you don't understand the mind of a perpetrator and how they worked on you and what they did to you, um, it's real difficult then to let go of that shame and that guilt and, and heal. Um, so that's where my book is available, and again, on my website. And I also have a Facebook page, Sandy Fultz, with an uh, author. So if you could give a message to everyone listening that is just either just now starting their beginning of this journey of healing, or they may be been in it for a short little period of time, what would you offer them? Well, first of all, I understand your hurt and pain. Abuse causes a tremendous amount of devastation and pain and hurt. Again, I cannot emphasize education enough, but I would also say you need to tell someone. And I say that coming from someone who never told anyone for 27 years. And keeping that secret only creates more trauma. It only creates um, more pain. Because what I learned was while I thought I was controlling the secret, the secret was controlling me because he was still a part of my life. I had to think about him. I had to worry about people finding out. And that kept him in my life. So be key to yourself every day if you need to. This was not my fault. Love yourself. Be kind to yourself because you're going to have really rough days. And then find someone you can trust and tell. And I would encourage if your abuse occurred in the church, maybe to seek someone outside of the church. Um, yes, yeah, seek someone outside of the church. Not that it can't be someone in the church, but I certainly know that their reaction can be a little bit differently. And let me just say this to someone who um, knows of someone who's been abused within the church. I tell those people, if you want to be helpful to a victim of clergy abuse, be careful about helping them with things that you find comforting, like prayer and scripture, because those are triggers for most victims of clergy abuse. 
So when you say to someone, I'll pray for you, that's probably not going to be helpful to them and be aware of that. Um, and, and so victims, when you are with, within the church and you still have friends who are within the church, um, those triggers may come because while their intentions are good, they're, they really misunderstand, um, the dynamics of clergy abuse and the damage it done. So just again, quickly, love yourself. You are not to blame until someone. Absolutely. Cindy, I cannot thank you enough. Contagious Malcolm, for story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Okay.